Upgrading hundreds of Kubernetes clusters is no easy task, but Pierre Mavro is definitely one person who's right for the job. He's a co-founder and CTO at Covery and has been working with a small team of engineers that's been able to automate the process of upgrading Kubernetes clusters, both public and private clouds. We sat down with him for a nice podcast here at CubeFM to hear about how it's done and not to break the bank in the process. Welcome to the CubeFM podcast. Pierre, very nice to have you with us. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. I'm really happy. As are we. That being said, we always like to ask our guests the following question. If you had to install three tools on a new Kubernetes cluster, which tools would they be and why? Okay. So let's, uh, I don't think I have uh, only three tools, but maybe some stack uh, or some tooling not uh, really installed on the cluster, but that you can use. Uh, my first will go with K9S. Uh, because kubectl uh, is great, but uh, when you start managing digging and stuff like that, it can be long to type a lot of commands. And Kanines uh, is um, a tool that helps you with a TUI to analyze your cluster, dig into the logs, get uh, pod information, uh, uh, edit kubeconfig, um, sorry, uh, config map, and you can do a lot of stuff. Uh, really easily uh, when you start to learn <laughs> the hotkeys for sure. But uh, yeah, it's a very great tool. Uh, the second one is mostly a combo. Uh, uh, I would say external DNS set manager and Nginx ingress. Uh, because when you have this uh, stack, uh, you can easily uh, deploy an application, making it available through a DNS with a TLS without that much effort because it's just annotation you put and the magic happened. And uh, uh, I, I was amazed uh, when I uh, first uh, discovered uh, external DNS uh, a long, long time ago. But uh, this is uh, one of the things uh, that I found, oh yeah, we jump into the next level uh, and this is really great. So I, I like this stack. And uh, finally, the last one is mostly uh, an observability stack uh, with Prometheus, metric server, Prometheus adapter, and so on and so forth to have uh, a really um, a good observability of what happened on the cluster. And cherry on top, uh, you can do custom auto-scaling stuff. So yeah, this is for me a, a, a really interesting part and uh, something that should uh, be deployed soon. Good. Well, now that we got that out of the way, we know about your your personal choices regarding tooling. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about more about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? And where do you work? Sure. So um, I'm co-founder and CTO at Covering. So I've been working in big companies like Red Hat, Criteo, uh, in the last decade, um, I manage. Um, I've managed uh, to deploy private clouds uh, in telecom industry and worked for uh, public clouds uh, for various company in public clouds. Uh, I've been working um, on a lot of various di distributed systems, mostly for uh, NoSQL databases. 
And finally, uh, I think a few would be interested that I started to work on Kubernetes uh, in 2016 uh, on the version 1.2, if I, if I remember well. So it's been a long, long time and things have changed, but uh, yeah, it was fun. And um, so I'm working at Covery uh, and um, to give you some context with uh, what will f follow, uh, Covery is a self-service developer platform, meaning developers can deploy their code on a Kubernetes cluster without having uh, any infrastructure knowledge and they can uh, have ephemer ephemeral environments uh, with a single click. So the developer experience is high. In parallel, um, DevOps keeps control of the platform and Covery is their best friend. We deploy on the customer cloud account, a cloud-managed Kubernetes cluster, and we deploy several uh, infrastructure elements, so basically charts, uh, to have a fully ready production cluster quickly. So in a few minutes, a Kubernetes cluster appears in the Covery web console and application can be easily deployed. So Kubernetes is at the heart of our stack. And uh, this is why it's really important for us because as we are multi-cloud provider, I mean, we are using multi-cloud, uh, we try to be as agnostic as possible and Kubernetes is the the art of uh, of this. Very good. Obviously, when you started in 2016, things were a little bit different. Tell me about <laughs> that a little bit more. You know, how did you learn Kubernetes? What was your process? You know, getting into this cloud native world. Yeah, uh, learning uh, Kubernetes is uh, is a long road, <laughs> I would say. Uh, at this time, there were uh, less uh, elements for sure. Uh, mostly all in alpha, as I, as I remember, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it was bef different because, um, so in 2016, um, I was working for Criteo, but at the same time I had my own company, um, and, um, I was deploying, uh, Kubernetes on bare metal nodes. Uh, and for that I was using kubespray. So for those who don't know kubespray, kubespray is a way to deploy a Kubernetes, a Kubernetes cluster uh, with Ansible uh, on um, cloud providers, bar metal. I mean, there are several options where you can decide where you want to deploy this. And it was very interesting because I, I learned a lot of stuff on all the Kubernetes component, component because um, uh, when you manage by your own a Kubernetes cluster, there are, there are several components that you have to understand how they work individually, all together, etc., etc. It's necessary to learn and debug. Um, I also learn um, with uh, Kubernetes hardware uh, from uh, Kelsey Hightower. So it's a good way to start as well. Maybe a little bit complex uh, if you are just uh, interested by uh, what is Kubernetes and how to use it, because this is more how you deploy it and how you manage it. But it's really useful as well. And finally, the official documentation is also excellent, I would say. Very good. 
if you had to go back and give, you know, advice to yourself in 2016, you know, you mentioned reading Kelsey Hightower, you know, Kubernetes the hard way. Do you feel like there were things that you did that perhaps looking back now you would do differently? Uh, maybe not that much, in fact, because uh, Kubespray was the best option at this time uh, to deploy a Kubernetes cluster. Um, it's been a long time that uh, I didn't look at this project, <laughs> unfortunately, but uh, no, I, I don't think so, to be honest. Okay. You mentioned about projects, you know, in, in terms of your growth, you know, as a, as a technologist, um, the kind of projects that you've been working on, you did mention bare metal. Um, you also mentioned, you know, you mentioned previously talking about, uh, you know, private clouds, things of that yeah. nature. What what's your what what kind of Kubernetes experience and and projects uh, have you been working on in terms of you know the amount of clusters the amount of nodes? Yeah. Okay. So I mentioned that uh, when I was at Credo, I had my own company, and I and I have built um, a ten nodes cluster on bare metal. Uh, after a year, um, I saw all the benefits that uh, Kubernetes could have. Uh, at Critio, where, where I was uh, working on. Um, because at this time, um, to give you an idea, um, I had a NoSQL team. Uh, so this was my responsibility. Uh, the team was composed of five engineers to support several million of requests per second. Uh, and <laughs> we had uh, 4,500 nodes. So it was pretty huge. No VM, only bar metal. So you can imagine the maintenance that we could have when nodes were crashing, uh, ha having some uh, um, red, red, uh, red card firmware issues or uh, any failure elements, I mean, hardware ones. It was not that easy, uh, and we were doing so NoSQL. Uh, we were providing NoSQL technology like uh, Cassandra, Coachbase, Elasticsearch, MKHD, and so the state, the the, the load were was only um, stateful. Okay, so Kubernetes as Kubernetes as stateful, I mean to support stateful uh, <laughs> stuff was not that easy uh, as well, and maybe not. Uh, super uh, mature. Uh, anyway, it was enough uh, to, to manage uh, our main issues. So th the main goal was to replace manual operation for stateful database and have something fully automated, avoiding ma manual intervention. So the change was pretty interesting. And um, I introduced Kubernetes at Criteo at this time. But it was not that easy because it was in 2018. And at the beginning of 2018, uh, Kubernetes was not yet the market leader. Uh, and internally at Criteo, we had Mesos as well. So some kind of competitor for uh, Kubernetes. So it wasn't that easy to, to bring it. But we were able to do it. And uh, so with my team at this time, um, we've made um, all the chef recipe uh, to be able to deploy Kubernetes cluster uh, on-premise. 
then we've made some custom stateful set hooks, startup script, etc., to make it happen. And at this time, operators were very young, and uh, we wanted to validate the performance before moving on. And so after eight months, uh, we've been able to roll out to Kubernetes, move all the workload uh, on Kubernetes. So we are pretty happy about it, but it was uh, not a walk in the park, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I think, but you know, just for the sake of context, like you explained, 2018 Kubernetes is not the only option. You know, the cloud, yeah. you know, the, the container orchestration wars or competitions going on. Simultaneously, you're reading Kelsey Hightower, who at that point was very adamant about saying, don't run stateful workloads on Kubernetes. Mm. You are bravely leading a team of five people <laughs> and yeah. saying, look, we're going to do this. How do you get your team to level up given the lack of maturity around some of the tooling, the operator framework, you know, the landscape was not yeah. the, the same that it is today. How was that process? Yeah. The, the workload at, at Critio was high. So we didn't have per node a lot of pod. This was the, the simple part uh, of the thing, in fact, uh, because we had a big server. When I say big, it was, they were all between uh, uh, 50 and 100 CPU each uh, and um, uh, 256 gigabytes of RAM up to uh, 500 uh, gigabytes of RAM. So server were pretty big. The workload was pretty big, so there were no real um, advantage having a lot of pod on on a single uh, on a single node. Instead of that, cluster we had. So when I mean cluster, it's um, uh, not virtual, but you see, um, uh, let's say a, a Cassandra cluster. I mean, we could have multiple Cassandra Cassandra cluster on a single Kubernetes cluster, but uh, all nodes uh, of Cassandra, for example, there was only one node per physical Kubernetes node. So only one real pod working on each machine. So this made the, the complexity simpler um, regarding the, the storage we we needed uh, high performances, so you can't compete with local storage, to be honest, with SSD or NVMe. Um, and we used Kubernetes to be able to detect some issues using PDB, stateful set, hooks, and stuff like that, like, like I mentioned. And when something bad was detected, then we could cut a node Use another node to provision it. So a new a new uh, stateful set pod, for example, was replaced at this, at this time, and data started to move it on. So we can always keep control of what happened, decide how many uh, operation we could do, and stuff like that uh, at the same time. So the complexity was not uh, really uh, on the number of nodes, but mostly on how the behavior we should uh, adapt based on the situation for each Elasticsearch, uh, Cassandra, etc. It's very, very good to have that context to better understand the, the post, that, the blog that you wrote that we're going to be focusing on today, which is 
titled The Cost of Upgrading Hundreds of Kubernetes Clusters. So I want to hear a little bit about, you know, after managing all this, you know, very large infrastructure in, in, in previous positions, you moved on and founded Covery. What was the reason behind that? Where, what made you think like, hey, this is my next step as, as an engineer, as a technologist? Kubernetes um, is well known now and um, cloud providers decided uh, to use Kubernetes. And I mean, it has been selected to be the leader uh, on the market. And we discussed with a lot of companies struggling on Kubernetes, how it works. Uh, they want to win time. They want to be pragmatic, brings the, to developers what they need to be able to work, uh, no matter the technology uh, used, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, everyone wants Kubernetes. And cloud manager, cloud provider made a good work on providing Kubernetes, but, uh, you know, it's just the skeleton. Then you have a lot of things to install on it to make it really uh, usable for uh, end developers. And this is where it takes a long, long time. Uh, um, and once you've deployed them, I mean, all the necessary chart, you have to manage them. <laughs> it's not a, hey, inst it's installed and I'm done. Because anytime you will have to uh, make Kubernetes upgrade, you have API change, you have software change because there are some updates or for security uh, concern or just because you want to update because you want to have new feature etc you have a lot of things to do and doing that is really 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 long so having a common stack on all the cloud providers and being able to support it really easily for devops it's super useful and uh, this is one of the reasons we've made a, a covery but uh, the second one is really on the developer experience because we want developer to be as autonomous as possible and be able to roll out their code really easily without headache. With that in mind, when we're talking about, you know, upgrading clusters, something that, that, that's talked about a fair amount is managing clusters. Now, the word management can mean a lot of things to different people. In your case, how do you define it at Covery when, when people are speaking about managing clusters? Yeah, <laughs> Man managing means a lot of things, I agree. Um, so he here is what we are doing today. We manage cluster upgrades, meaning the customer is advertised when we roll out the next version of Kubernetes. Uh, then we perform the upgrade on the advertised date. Uh, we also deploy several infrastructure elements uh, to have a turnkey Kubernetes ready for production in 30 minutes. And um, we manage chart lifecycle. For example, you have a logging stack, metric server, Nginx ingress, external DNS, self-manager, vertical product scaler, etc. etc. There are a lot of uh, charts to manage. Um, deploying on Kubernetes has never been so easy with Covery. So we have interfaces like a web console allowing you to give uh, your Git repository containing your code and your Docker file. We manage the build, the build we push to a container registry and uh, we perform the deployment with uh, 
customers' desired option. Our approach is opinionated. So as soon as you are deploying through query, we handle the lifecycle of the deployed uh, elements through query. So user over the time don't have to think about, hey, what will have changed with the next version uh, of uh, Kubernetes and so on and so forth. We manage it for, for them. And uh, as we are in charge of managing uh, infrastructure element uh, deployed on the cluster, we ensure the cluster will work based on the customer need. For example, we are using a cluster autoscaler. It automat automatically adds uh, or remove nodes based on the consumption of the, of the cluster. Uh, we've deployed a vertical and horizontal pod autoscaler on the infrastructure element to fit uh, requested resource, resources when the, the, the customer usage change. This is what we are calling managing, in fact. So the customer don't have to think about his infrastructure. Everything is automated and managed by Cobra. All right. And it, just a quick question. How many, you know, how many engineers are we talking about? How many, how big is your team? So today the team, so the tech team uh, is composed of uh, 10 engineers uh, working on the project. And how is it possible that you and your team are managing hundreds of clusters with just a handful of people doing it? <laughs> um, the, the answer is short, <laughs> but it's complex. We do test. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, to be honest, we have a lot of tests, and um, we, we are ready to, to to do it in the in the correct order. We we are reading every Kubernetes update on the Vanilla change log uh, and cloud provider updates. We have, for example, RSS, RSS feeds uh, directly into Slack, so nobody uh, is missing uh, the information. The information. Um, for each cloud provider, we support uh, multiple archi architecture, so uh, x64 and ARM. Uh, for, and for each of those, we have a running cluster that runs tests from our engine pipeline. So the engine uh, at Covery is uh, the part of code um, managing all the Kubernetes part and the cloud provider part. So in the engine, we have a lot of unit tests and we have also end-to-end -end tests, deploying cluster, apps in it with different configuration and so on and so forth. So for every uh, commit we make, all those, all those tests have to pass before being merged. Um, and regarding the upgrade, we are also using some tooling to help us on uh, API deprecation, for example. So we are using Kubernetes, Popeye, uh, Kadave, or Pluto. Uh, this is just an example of four uh, uh, tools that are really interesting. But it's some time we, we invest in uh, to, to ensure everything is working as expected. And um, before running a new Kubernetes cluster for our customers, we test it for weeks on our own cluster. And then everything uh, is deployed uh, on customer cluster. But there are some rules. For example, we deploy first non-production cluster, and 
customers are warned about it. So if there is something bad happening, uh, we are alerted and uh, we we fix uh, well, the bad behavior. But uh, until now, uh, <laughs> touch wood, it never happened. But uh, then we can roll out uh, production one or two weeks after if everything goes fine. With, with that in mind, you know, it's as no secret, there are a lot of moving parts in this ecosystem. And one of the things to keep track of that I'd like to hear more about is when there's a new release, right? In one of our previous episodes, we spoke to Grace, who is the uh, 1.28 release lead about the Kubernetes change log being a very long list of features that's sometimes difficult to decipher, can be, can be tricky to stay on top of it. How does what's your strategy for for unpacking and spotting potential difficulties when there's a new release that's coming out? What how does that how do you how do you approach that? Yeah. So to be honest, we, we read the change log. This is uh, the first thing to do. Uh, but only a few engineers of the team understand all the change log. Why? Because um, those who never manage on-premise Kubernetes cluster never dug into the Kubernetes code or familiar enough with Kubernetes internals and will have hard time to understand everything. Why? Because with cloud provider and managing Kubernetes version, there is no need to understand all that complexity. So generally, cloud providers are giving upgrade processes and important changes are written in a doc somewhere. And... I would say 99% of the time, uh, it will be enough. Uh, and you won't have a bad surprise uh, or breaking change. Um, but you can't do it without as well a lot of tooling and a lot of tests. We always go through a manual process, even if we instrument a lot uh, in our engine. Uh, upgrades and stuff like that. I mean, there are a lot of tests to ensure that everything is fine anytime. So if we change or if we don't change uh, some parts, because uh, yeah, it's uh, Kubernetes with a lot of charge charts. When everything is deployed, when we talk about logging, uh, observability, ingresses, et cetera, et cetera, it's a lot of things combine all together because they all rely on uh, each other. So yeah, test is uh, is the thing. <laughs> so when speaking, you know, we're speaking about upgrading clusters, but also regarding upgrading Helm charts. Um, yeah. What's your process and how do you pl- how do you go about planning those upgrades? Yeah, so Kubernetes, uh, upgrading Kubernetes cluster uh, uh, may be complex, but uh, charts is, I think, uh, at higher at higher level, <laughs> to be honest, because uh, charts uh, is not only a chart upgrade, but there is also a software in it. <laughs> For example, when you upgrade uh, the Loki chart, you don't only upgrade the chart, but you upgrade Loki as well. Um, so to understand what has changed, uh, you need to read the change log uh, of the chart and you need to read the change log of the software you are upgrading inside it. Um, so our process for that is um, I, I'm pretty straightforward. First, uh, every single chart we are using, they are committed in our engine repository. 
So this way, we are not downloading anytime we want to deploy something, uh, a chart. Uh, and it allows us to have um, a clear view of what we had at a given time because everything is in Git. So we keep the control on it. For this, we've created a M-Freeze. So it's a tool that we've made and it's open source, so anyone can use it. And we define the end chart we want to use and the version we want to stick on. So when we want to make an upgrade, we just change it, perform a hand-freeze upgrade, and then the new version is downloaded and we can simply use git diff to see all the change impacted by the, the upgrade. Um, so this is for the chart. So we can then adapt a uh, change uh, on, the, on some values if necessary, uh, directly with uh, M values override. Uh, we use our unit and functional test to validate updates as usual. And um, we route um, on our test cluster to validate that everything is running as expected. And then uh, we roll out on all our test cluster and after a few days, we release for all our customers. And what about catching edge cases? Do you write more automation uh, in the Helm charts to do that? Or what's your strategy for that? Yeah, so um, we are happy to see more and more tests directly inside the community Helm charts. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a requirement, uh, but we strongly believe it will help companies to trust community charts in the future. We enabled um, some Elm option by default uh, in our engine, like uh, dash dash atomic or dash dash weight to reduce upgrade failure. But sometimes it's not enough. Um, we can have pods not crashing, but failing to be LC uh um, in 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 terms of uh, the status but it's it's seen as lc from a kubernetes point of view and when you look at their log you see that something is wrong so we instrumented our engine to handle additional tests when deploying an infrastructure chart for every single chart we are deploying we generally add an extra test or some extra test for it so the engine is written in rust uh, it's inside our engine today. We think about doing an external and dedicated library for it so everyone will be able to use it. And um, so what we've made, uh, more than what uh, Elms by default brings, uh, is, for example, we handle uh, CRDs upgrade. So when you are using a chart deploying CRDs, uh, you know that uh, when you have to make an upgrade, you have first to upgrade CRDs in the version required, and then you are able to upgrade the chart. So there are some process around CRDs, and uh, on our part, is automated. We just declare the CRDs, and they are automatically updated in the correct order and stuff like that. Uh, we also backup and restore uh, resource before upgrading. Um, it happened, for example, on um, a cert manager with uh, some important change, and we wanted to be able to keep um, generated certificates and ensuring that we won't lose them in a, in a big upgrade, for example. So 
to ensure that we, we made backups. Uh, and finally, for example, we are able to reinstall a non-critical chart uh, if the installed version is uh, not equal uh, or lower than a, a specified one. So this to avoid managing uh, chart upgrades with multiple re release in between. So we can directly jump to a higher version uh, without no problem. And uh, we also instrumented uh, our engine to handle failed cases uh, as well. So for example, before running a cluster upgrade, several tasks uh, are made to reduce the failure. For example, uh, a job failure uh, may deny the cluster upgrade, a bad PDB configuration or status may uh, deny the cluster upgrade or not group uh, update. Um, but in a bad shape, but non-started. I mean, there are several elements or behaviors that could avoid your upgrade to be success uh, to be a success. So we automatically fix, clean, and make update and warn the user to ensure the upgrade will succeed if we can't automatically uh, repair it. And uh, finally, as we have a large set of clusters and a single way to manage them, it's possible for us to automate everything and run a grid smoothly. One thing that's actually not scripted, but I just want to dig into a little bit. You you talked about CRDs. A very good friend of mine um, is said a long time ago, but is really stuck to this point that CRDs are, it's his favorite feature in Kubernetes, custom resource uh, definition. Would you agree with that? And if not, do you have a feature that you would say would be your favorite? Yeah. So I think it's a good point because I mostly agree uh, in terms of feature because it's excellent. You can do whatever you want. You are not stick with what Kubernetes provides. You can do everything. So this is excellent. However, I would say the support level for CRDs is not as good as the one it, it would be. Uh, this is why we had to, to implement other stuff to manage CRDs. Uh, that's a shame, I would say, uh, that Elm doesn't manage, better manage those CRD because, um, yeah, we have more and more CRD <laughs> always. And um, I, I think the tooling around it is not uh, mature enough today, uh, unfortunately. But uh, definitely, uh, CRD is uh, very, very good. All right. Just want to, it's always good to, everyone has d different experiences. Of, you've been using Kubernetes since 2016. So your experience, you know, is, is unique in that regard. Um, now, you've explained this, this whole process that you and, and your engineers are using. How does this process scale if you go beyond 100 clusters? And what would it take, you know, any, in terms of any additional resources or processes to be able to handle that kind of magnitude. Yeah. So we have to go further, making more tests for those charts by using metrics, for example. This could be a, a good solution because every application or mostly every application are bringing metrics and some are, are, are really good. And when you perform some upgrades, for example, you have metrics that could be used to ensure that the application is uh, running as expected. But not only that, um, 
today we are close to have a 300 managed cluster uh, on the average. So to manage more, we'll have to be able to A-B test uh, with more granularity. Today we can limit to a given number of cluster, filter only uh, production, not production ones, uh, spe uh, specific cloud provider, for example. So we can decide what to do where. But more control is needed, like uh, stopping on a failure, giving more information to the end user, mostly because most of the time issues are coming from the cloud provider itself, like quota issues uh, and user intervention is required here. Um, the key to manage Kubernetes cluster at scale, in fact, is tooling. It was like my previous experience at Criteo, managing a lot of stuff. Uh, tooling is necessary. It's not necessary, it's mandatory. Shout out to your team. That's good. Yeah. And right. <laughs> and and speaking of your team, what's next at Covery? What's up, what's on your roadmap? Yeah. So on our roadmap, uh, we want to handle uh, more cloud provider. Uh, I told you. Uh, we want to be cloud provider agnostic as much as possible, and we want to be able to cover all of them. But um, today we support AWS and Scaleway. At the end of the year, we will support GCP as well. Um, our engine is really stunning Rust. Uh, we've made specific code like the one we discussed with Elm. We want to move those as dedicated libraries, as I told you, because we want to leverage the community on those uh, parts. We really think that Kubernetes and Rust are working very well together. And we strongly believe that Rust is an excellent language and is very good, a very good companion for production usage. So sharing our libs uh, will, I mean, could help the adoption and of Rust and uh, Kubernetes at the same time. Um, we also have plans uh, to bring a catalog, a service catalog, where you can easily deploy what you want from Kubernetes or on a Kubernetes cluster. And this catalog will help DevOps to propose a simple deployer, deployable application to their developer with an excellent experience. So something that could be very complex for developers, make it easy just by using a catalog. And just out of curiosity, you mentioned some cloud providers, but didn't mention Azure. Any reason for that? Yeah. Um, bringing uh, a new cloud provider uh, with the team size we have today uh, is complex. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought you said they were seniors. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we are senior, but we have um, uh, a hard time uh, <laughs> as well with some cloud provider because, uh, yeah, some are more mature than others. Uh, some have more experience. Some have, yeah. Uh, more uh, resources and stuff like that and uh, and provide different kind of services. And today what we see is that AWS and GCP are the most requested one by our customers. So we are focusing 
on this at the first time. Uh, but we also have in the box uh, something uh, even more modular, uh, allowing uh, coverage to be deployed uh, on any kind of Kubernetes cluster, no matter the cloud provider. But it's not ready yet, so... We'll wait to hear. We'll wait to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah well, that's good. That's good. Now, but anyway, it sounds like you know things are going in a good direction, and that it's you very much seem like a person who likes challenges. And the, what I want to finish with is the, the question that I've been dying to get to: is that <laughs> you have a black belt in karate, all right? So, yeah. tell me about doing karate the hard way, or what's your what's your experience with karate, and how does that maybe inform how you approach? challenges, how you break things down to steps. I want to know more about that. Okay. Uh, so I still practice karate uh, and I, start, I started uh, 25 years ago. So to me, it's important for the way. Just for context, uh, if you know you were in Kubernetes in 2016, this means this is Windows 98. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> we can compare it to that. And, and uh, yeah, pr pr practicing sport in general uh, is, is important for sure. Uh, for example, when I'm fed up with something, my laptop is taking a mawashigari. So, you know, it's a circular kick. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> uh, yeah, people are generally impressed by my capacity of taking on me when uh, there are some stressful uh, uh, situation, but I, I strongly believe uh, it's uh, because of the martial art, uh, which is helping me a lot, uh, to be honest. But uh, yeah, um, I agree. I think because uh, also be, I'm a huge martial arts fan, and, and karate was the first martial art that I practiced. I never became a black belt, but one thing that I think is really important that's taught in martial arts, and if they're the instructors are good is that it seems like a lot of it's about, you know, control of your body, but so much of it prior to that is control of your emotions and, yeah. and working with Kubernetes or, uh, you know, cloud providers or all the technical challenges that we've been talking about will involve some kind of an emotional response. And so knowing what an emotion is coming and how that may block thought patterns or you know, redirect them, I think it's something that a lot of people might not see or understand a lot about martial arts. I'd like to know what's your what's what's your thoughts on that. <laughs> Second joker. Uh, no, uh, yeah, your your question is hard because uh, I really think is uh, it, it depends. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, every individual is every person is different uh, in the way we receive the information, interpret it being able to absorb and uh, give the information back. There are from various ways. And uh, uh, keeping the control uh, is totally different from one person to another. Uh, I've been working in the, bank in the banking industry uh, for around 10 years. Uh, so uh, dealing with bank traders, uh, you can't ima imagine as uh, stressful uh, it can be uh, sometimes. Um, some people are able to deal with it. Some others are just not and will certainly never be able to because it's just not uh, the way they are and they just can't. So 
I'm not saying that I can't handle everything, <laughs> not at all. But uh, but yeah, I think some people are more prepared uh, on stressful uh, uh, situation and uh, some sports like uh, karate can help a lot to manage it at uh, a, cer- a certain level, <laughs> depending on the person. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a good point. I also think that there are so many different kinds of martial arts. It doesn't mean that everyone has to go out and become a black belt. But the experience of self-discovery, uh, self-awareness, also situational awareness, I think that it can provide, because of the the risk factor in martial arts, as it with any sport, in any sport you can get injured, like yeah. even, even in golf. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't played golf enough to get injured. I don't plan <laughs> on it. I don't plan on it either. But because of the fact that, yeah, martial arts, you know, all the instructors that I've had have always explained, you know, this is not a toy. This is not a game. There's a deep uh, level of respect um, that that's that's established in terms of creating spaces. I just think it's something that uh, when when we when we decided to, to do the podcast, it's like, oh, this is going to be fun to be able to talk about that. And so you've been doing it for 25 years. And uh, I, I assume you continue, you want your, your plan is yeah. to continue with it as well? Yeah, I'm still, I'm, I'm still continuing. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think I will stop. Uh, I mean, the day I will stop that uh, it will be, I, will, I, will, I won't be able at all <laughs> to do karate anymore. But uh, yeah, it's, in, it's part of my alien now, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think it's a really positive thing. So that being said, if people want to get in touch with you, whether it's about automation, testing, or karate, what's the best way to do so? <laughs> uh, so people can reach me on LinkedIn uh, or by mail at uh, pierre.covery.com. Fantastic. But uh, okay. I, I don't think I would be a super teacher for karate, to be honest, but for other things... Uh, it can be useful. KubeCon Paris. I propose that yeah. we do a karate session, even if it's 15 minutes. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I haven't done karate for a long time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> worth trying. Um, Pierre, thank you very much for your time. It's wonderful to talk to somebody who's been working with this and has just taken challenge after challenge, doing Kubernetes the hard way and really doing it the hard way back in the day, running stateful workloads. You've earned my respect and I'm sure for a lot of other people as well. I look forward to hearing more about what you've got going on as well as Covery. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for your time and thanks for um, having me invited in this uh, podcast. Pleasure. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.